Welcome to the Scatter Podcast with your hosts, Javier Oraca and Joel Dayrit. Hi, and welcome to the Scatter Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel, and on today's episode, we have Carlos Brown, who is a data scientist at GuideHouse. So let's get started. Carlos, thanks for joining us on Scatter Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So this is interesting because we haven't had too many consultants on the data front come on the show. So I'm definitely excited about getting your perspective and learning about your experience and journey. I guess to start, like, tell us a bit about your education and professional background prior to you getting to GuideHouse. Yeah, so my background is similar to a lot of different people that are coming into data science from fields that aren't computer science. So I went to University of South Carolina to get my bachelor's in engineering. And I think back on that time as to why I chose engineering. And honestly, I'm not sure. I knew that I really enjoyed the technical work and I wanted to do something with with math and science. And uh, I knew that from a young age, so that was pretty clear to me. But as to why I went into engineering, I just chose something that sounded interesting and I found that I liked it. And so I, you know, I worked in many different fields within structural engineering, civil engineering for a few years uh, throughout the 2010s. I started at a nuclear power plant, worked there as a, a plant engineer making modifications to the plant as it was already constructed, but sometimes they would need to make structural changes. So that was the guy that did that. And then I moved into grad school at Texas A&M after that, and that was about two years, and really enjoyed my time there. Did research, also uh, laboratory research into fatigue testing of, we had these steel eye bars, which are basically, picture an old railroad bridge, one of the big old truss bridges. They had demolished it and took out the joints and we were able to procure those and test them. And so that was research that went into building out some codes that people would use to evaluate these old bridges that are still in use. And I had a lot of fun with that. I, I really enjoyed the laboratory environment. I enjoyed the statistical analysis that went into it all. And I actually kind of enjoyed that more than the engineering work that I was doing. So that was, that was one of the first clues that data science was something that was going to be in my future. And after that, I came to Atlanta and was doing bridge design. And actually, I mean, I enjoyed it. Like every, everything that I've done in engineering, I enjoyed. But now that I'm in data science, I realize that that was good for me. But what I'm doing now is, is just perfect. It's just really great. And oh, I'll just say good. that every day is, is just you know sunshine and roses. But I know that I am like where I'm supposed to be. That's awesome. Yeah. Joel, did you have a question? No, no, I was just commenting that, you know, it's a it's it's a great fit for you. A lot of people like when we were taking the program, a lot of people came in from like various backgrounds and it's just good to see like all these people getting into data science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing I left out of that is that how I transitioned from structural engineering to data science wasn't just a, a, a quick leap into the dark. It was actually a pretty intense time of studying. I was in a, a boot camp called Springboard. It's one of the more popular online boot camps for data science. And I was able to somehow manage working full time doing bridge design and studying uh, before I went to work and then after I went to work doing project based 
studying, um, just learning all of the basics of machine learning. I was able to bring in some of my previous background in programming and in statistics, hypothesis testing, things like that. And that was able to build off of that. And I wasn't starting from ground zero. But then once I went through that course, I was perfectly set up to start doing what I'm doing now for GuideHouse. Okay. No, I, I really appreciate the background. And so at GuideHouse, talk a bit about what the company is at large, because I imagine some of our listeners may not know. And then what does it mean to be a data scientist at GuideHouse? Are you focused mostly on internal projects or the team, the practice that you're part of? Are you guys external facing? Like, what do you guys do within the, the realm of data science? Right. So GuideHouse is a business consultancy firm. And up until a few months ago, we were primarily, our clients were primarily in the public sector. And so we were doing a lot of contracts with the government and working with just every division of the government, the federal government mostly, but also state and local is a, a big part of our business as well. But we were doing contracts with them. And when we got Navigant, when we procured them through a merger, we got a lot of new commercial work that is, you know, publicly traded companies and private businesses and things like that, that we're consulting for as well. Most everything that I do and that my team here in Atlanta does is client facing. We're not doing a lot of internal work that's just being used by guidehouse personnel, though that is part of what we do. But our skill set is mainly in delivering to people in the government agencies that we're working for and giving them analyses, data products, dashboards, APIs, the full gamut of what a data scientist could possibly do. We're providing those deliverables to them. And so that's really interesting because I think that there's like, there's different flavors of data scientists and that like you have people that do data engineering, you have people that do data analytics, and then you have more of the scientists themselves. And what I'm doing and what a lot of my team are doing is a mix of all of that. And so we, we work primarily with the CDC, at least here in Atlanta. We also have an office in D.C., and they, they work with so many different sectors of the federal government there. But most of our work here in Atlanta is with the CDC. What sort of work do you guys do with the CDC? So right now, there's a certain class of chemicals that is being studied by the CDC. It doesn't have a lot of research surrounding it, and the CDC wants to understand what is the geospatial distribution of this chemical, what are the risk factors, what do we need to do to engage the public so that they understand better their risks. And so we are working, and I don't want to mention the actual chemical, course, but we're working with them to build out everything that they need to really address the problem of how bad is this chemical? Where can we find it? What are the primary sources? Are people in a certain geographic or demographic group, are they more prone to be exposed to this chemical? A lot of my work since I started with GuideHouse is surrounding just this one project. So I haven't, I haven't really put out my feelers beyond that just yet since I'm fairly new at GuideHouse. But we're doing a lot of geospatial work with them, a lot of uh, spatial regression. I'm getting to use random forest, logistic regression, you know, classification models to predict where we're going to find this chemical. Because we have data that they did some testing and it's, you know, it's geospatially located. But we don't know exactly where the rest of the chemical is going to be found. We don't know the highest risk areas. And so my job right now is to build out that model and to build out the visualizations to communicate with the stakeholders at the CDC so that they'll be able to interface with this platform that we're building for them. And they'll be able to access all the information they need to do 
uh, either their scientific work or policy work even. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'm doing a lot of modeling for them right now and interfacing a lot with scientists and spatial statisticians at the CDC and iterating with them. That's a big part of what I'm doing is that we don't get the statement of work from them and then just go off into our whole build something and then six months later deliver it to them. What we're doing with the CDC is very iterative in nature and that they are intricately involved with it, especially since we're building this stuff on their local systems, deploying the models on their systems and building the visualizations with their tools. We are iterating you know, every week with them. We build something, present it to them, get feedback, and then go from there. That's really interesting because I feel like that kind of study is the perfect use case for data science. Epidemiology or epidemiological data. Um, is that a word, by the way? Epidemiological? I, I think so. Sounds yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so epidemiological data, I mean, the very nature of it is it has so many features to consider. So... Mm-hmm. If that's the type of thing that you guys are working on, I mean, there, there's just so much opportunity there. It is. And it, the cool thing about it is that being able to leverage publicly available data that you, Joel, anybody listening to this podcast could get a hold of, and we're building something that's really going to affect a lot of people. And it's the problem is so complex. The problem is so interesting. There's never a really a boring day with it. But I love being able to sit down and work on this and say, okay, We've got this data. What can we learn from it? And what can we say with a reasonable degree of accuracy? Like, where, where do we know that we're going to see this chemical? And to be able to get some certainty around that question and get an answer to it is really exciting for me. Because I know that this project and other projects that we're going to do for the CDC and other projects that my colleagues are doing for them is really going to impact people's lives in in a really positive way. And that's just extremely motivating to me because it puts a sense of mission in what I'm doing. And I'm not just working for the pay. I'm not just working for any kind of prestige that I could get from it, but that it's actually doing good for our society here in America. And um, I just love it. That's awesome. From an organizational perspective, do your company's data scientists work in independent teams uh, regarding reporting to specific departments, organizations, or do you work as a central data science team and like do most of the projects all together? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm still figuring out how that all works. Our team is really seen as the jack of all trades. We're the go-to guys if anything data-related. Like if they just see the word data, then they're going to go to our team and say like, hey, can you build this out? Can you, can you build a demo? Can you, can you do this? Can we tell them that we, that we can do this because you can do it? And they'll come to us with that. And so we work closely with what are called the account teams. So these are the people that really interface more so with our clients than we do, even though I'm in meetings with the CDC quite often and I'm talking with them and working with them. But we have an account team that will be kind of the frontline mediaries between the CDC and the rest of the company, or say like the other federal agencies that we work for and the rest of the company. And so we'll work intimately with the people on the account team to understand the problem, to communicate, you know, according to the CDC's protocol and to really build something out that's going to be useful for them. So we work in teams and we will often pull people on specific problems that we're having on a project. Like for example, I'm helping one of my colleagues to build out an API for another project that she's working on. 
but she has so much on her plate that she doesn't have time to do it. And I have a little bit more free time. So I've been helping her with that. And so I'm not necessarily the data scientist on that project for that specific uh, piece. I'm still helping her. And so we have the opportunity to work on multiple projects at the same time and to work as a team sometimes, but oftentimes it's really just us on our own, you know, and, and getting help as we need it and, and checking in with other colleagues on Slack and saying like, hey, like, have you seen this before? Do you guys know where we could find this? Or, or do we have any best practices surrounding this? It's interesting because there's a lot of collaboration, but not necessarily as in like, hey, we've got a team of data scientists working on this one thing. I think that happens more so in the DC office. There's a lot more data scientists, but we have a small team here in Atlanta. And so maybe it's just a little bit different. When interfacing with the account people, have you ever come across a situation where the account people would say like, hey, can you guys, we told the client that you guys could do this. Can you do this? Oh my or, goodness. Or do you guys, because <laughs> I, I feel that when you talk to people who are not data scientists or who haven't had much experience with it, they think that it can solve pretty much yeah. anything. So they sometimes promise it. So does that, has that ever happened to you? Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm dealing with that right now, actually, that um, we, we told, we told the CDC people that we would, we would deliver this one piece of a, a Power BI dashboard. And um, we've just run into some issues with uh, building that out. And I think it's going to be doable. It's just uh, the CDC system is very complex. There's a lot of protocols and checks and authentications that need to happen. And so there's just been some issue around data connectivity, data silos, things like that, that we've run into. But yeah, absolutely. To answer your question, there's just really one big thing that I'm thinking about right now, and it's the Power BI issue. But that just goes to show that, you know, when we're working with these account teams and we're working with the CDC, you need to check in quite often and you need to test your assumptions about what you think they want and just keep the channels of communication open because people who are not data scientists who have not worked in this process and this workflow may not understand the limits of what we can do and they may not understand honestly the time that it takes to do some of these things there's some things that we can that i can do very quickly there's some things that i have yet to learn there's some things that i'm kind of fast at doing and other things i'm not and that's where the support of your team comes in because somebody will be really good at modeling, but they may not be as good at, you know, doing visualizations. And, you know, you need to check in and keep those lines of communication open so that everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what the expectations are, what the time it takes to do those, those things are, and so that we can really deliver to the client in a way that they expect because we want to go above and beyond for them and we cannot over promise. Well, speaking of those projects, what's a typical project duration? I mean, how long does it normally take for you? Are you currently working on concurrent projects? Yeah. So again, everything that I'm working on right now is, is comes under the umbrella of this chemical that I mentioned before. I'm working on multiple different sub projects within this main project. Our contract goes for about six months and it will have the potential to continue. We do have ongoing contracts with different government agencies. I don't know if they're like capped at a certain number of years or if they just go on indefinitely, like we're providing support for them. I think six months is probably a typical project duration. When you and your team are approaching a new engagement, what does that sort of proposal process look like? Because in a lot of consulting spaces, there is no product to show up front. There is no like, super lightweight demo that you could prepare for a client. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Like I was doing M&A and uh, evaluation for a number of years. And, you know, we were crunching out proposals left and right, knowing that, hey, we'd win some, we'd lose some. But as part of that proposal process, it wasn't really, I was never demoing anything. It was more like, hey, you need this very specific financial reporting analysis done. Here's how much it, it would cost you. Here's kind of our scope. Mm-hmm. Do you guys produce some like high level prototype or demo for a client before you even get in? Or do you get paid to do that? I'm not so sure about producing a prototype before we even get the work, but I know that we're we're encouraged and we do this often that we will we will try to build a prototype if that's what the goal of the project is and we'll try to build that as soon as possible and even if it isn't a working prototype we would try to sketch out what we think it may look like like if we're trying to build a shiny dashboard but we don't have all the data yet we might run a simulation we might simulate that data just so that we can have data to pull into a dashboard to show the client hey this is what it's going to look like i know that we've done that for one project it's always good to have something in hand when you're doing consulting so that people can see it and can interact with something that will be close to the final product. We try to do that as much as possible, but are not always able to. I know that I'm working on a proposal currently where one of our directors is going to give a pitch to a, a state DOT, but since we don't have the modeling completed, he's going to hold off until we do so that we can we can show them hey we've actually got results already and we're not just saying that we think this could happen but we know that we'll be able to get something for you it's always good to have something in hand before you start pitching to a client absolutely i assume a lot more time and effort go into the actual proposals for data science work for large data science consulting projects than you know what I was used to. I mean, our proposals were long because there's a lot of like different terms and conditions that needed to be listed just as part of these legal requirements that the company wanted you to to put in there. Yeah. Um, but we were crunching out. I mean, I I was working on probably 30 to 50 engagements a year, maybe more. And so the scope of work I think is way different than, you know, what a large consultancy like Guidehouse would be doing from a data perspective. We had large engagements, but the vast majority of the work that I did were uh, quite small in fees and duration. In terms of your work, do you use any proprietary tools like off-the-shelf software or do you use like open source software? What is it that you primarily use for your work? Right. So most of what I do is with open source software, though some of it is proprietary proprietary stuff like Power BI for dashboarding. The CDC has as like a Power BI setup in their internal system. And so they like to use Power BI. But most of what I've been doing in the modeling for this chemical is using open source tools, using Python and R. And I've gotten to be fairly familiar with both languages. I, I would say my strength is in Python, but I'm learning R more simply because it seems to be more suited to the kind of consulting work that I'm doing where I need to be able to quickly build visualizations or dashboards or things like that, where we can then show that to the client. So I would say 95% of my work is with open source tools, but also there's a new push to use Power Apps. We're trying to explore what we can do with them since it's a fairly new, it seems like a fairly new thing, at least with the CDC. We're trying to see if we can help build out some more processes and workflows using Power Apps and maybe improve our own workflow. Carlos, what, what is that? I've never heard of Power Apps. So Power Apps is like a proprietary Microsoft 
suite of tools that it, it allows people who aren't developers to create applications. We, we haven't really used it a lot, but it's like a no-code solution to building out applications and building out, say, like you could build an API or you could build an application that, that pulls from an API without having to do any kind of coding, without having to do any kind of parsing. It'll wow. do all that work for you. So it's, it's convenient in that way. I'm just still not sure what are the limitations of that going to be, right? Because coding obviously allows you so much flexibility. And that's why data scientists use it, because we can do just so many different things, so many different models and visualizations. But Power Apps allows you to do that without literally no coding background. You can still build an app with it. Now you're right. It might require some sort of preset formats and processes that you need to adhere to rather than building it all from scratch. <laughs> right. And if you wanted to expand it and, and get a little bit more technical, I'm not sure how much code you could actually add into that. But something we're exploring. It's a new a new field. And so like every day we're learning something new. And it's kind of fun. Yeah. I feel like a tool like that would excel once you actually have all the features engineered and selected in the format that you want them to be ready to go through some type of like machine learning pipeline or what have you. Mm. I'd be very interested to know if it does any type of feature engineering or extraction, like creating new features or transformation of existing features. I feel like that's the part that, at least today, is still very much the, the human art in the data science. Yeah, absolutely. I think that having like a good command of that process and being able to build out a prototype of it is going to be powerful. And that may be one way that Power Apps helps us to iterate faster is to prototype an application that uses that feature engineering, that uses that ML pipeline that maybe we already have set up, but is like the end user interface that the CDC will interact with because they're not going to go into the code necessarily and tweak the features or tweak the filters and the transformations but that Power Apps would allow us to, and this is me just spitballing as well, but because <laughs> we haven't used it a lot, but Power Apps may enable us to build that out faster and to get something in front of them quicker and so that they'll be able to figure out, yes, this is what we want, or no, this is not what we want. Okay. Sort of adjacent to my last comment there, most of the time a data scientist spends at work is on data cleanup, sanitation, pre-processing. Do you feel like that's you know the same case for you? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the case for me. Before I got into the field, I read that. I read that statistic, like 80, 80 plus percent of your time is going to be in data transformation and data wrangling. Also, the term data munging is something that I feel like is the same thing as data wrangling. Maybe not, but they, yeah, they said that that's going to be most of your time. And I thought that was kind of weird until I actually got into the field and realized that that is the case. That is definitely the case. It's it's 100% true. I would say more, maybe even 90% of my time is doing that, at least on this specific project. And the reason being is that a lot of the interesting problems that you have to solve are not just going to have easily accessible, clean data available for you. If they do, then that means that somebody's probably already solved that problem already. And to be entrepreneurial, you need to branch out into fields and areas that haven't been touched yet. And so my example, some of the government data that I'm pulling from the HyFLID platform, the Homeland Infrastructure Level Data platform, is pulled from different sources. It has some overlap in between data sets, but not much. And so you sometimes need to convert data types. You need to you know, remove null values. You need to just do the whole process of data transformation. And that takes a while because 
you have to know your data. This is one of the things that you know I want to encourage people to do is to really understand and know your data and not just try to get to the end stage of modeling without actually understanding what your data is, what the data quality is, where does it come from, and what is it telling you. You need to be able to understand and explain the data very, very well before you even get to the modeling port. And that happens when you get intimately aware with it or when you get in the weeds, if you will, while you're going through the data transformation process. I think this is also goes into the question of Python versus R and which tool is better for this. And you know, really, I think it comes down to which tool do you feel more comfortable with? Though one of the things that I've encountered, you know, working as a data scientist consultant is that you need to be able to explain to people what you've done to the data, why you filtered on this column, why you removed this, why you didn't use that. And it helps to be able to do that if you have it in a kind of a pictorial format. So like if you're able to represent the data transformation process as a, as a DAG, as a directed acyclic graph, that goes a long way towards being able to communicate to people who weren't involved with the analysis from the beginning what you did and why you did it. And it's just, it's been so helpful for me to be able to build those graphs and find out tools within, I think R actually has some packages, ggdag and things like that, that you can build out that graph. And so people can see, here's the raw data, here's the transformation, and here's the combinations and the mergings, the joins that you did. And so it helps to communicate with them. It also helps to make the process reproducible. One of the main things we go for is that you know, if you're going to do a scientific analysis and people can't reproduce your results, then that calls into question what you did. And it's just not helpful. You know, like there's been a lot of talk about the reproducibility crisis, and that's kind of a separate reproducibility, but it goes to the heart of the matter in that if people do what you did before and they don't get the same results, then what did you really do? And so if you're able to communicate your data transformation, which goes into the feature engineering And that's one of the biggest pieces of a successful modeling project or a successful data project is that feature engineering step. If you're able to reproduce that and show it to people who are maybe laymen, who aren't data scientists, who don't use the tools that you use, but you can show them with a picture, hey, this is this is how it all fits together. It's it's just gold. It's absolutely crucial that you can do that. And it really helps keep the project going forward. Yeah, thank you. And that's awesome. I will check out ggdag. I use uh, Diagram R. Diagrammer. It's a, an R right, package to do these. Yeah. yeah, but I'll check this one out. Yeah, and another tool that I've found myself using quite often is draw.io. It's a website. You can also download a desktop version. But it just allows you to draw flowcharts and diagrams very easily, very quickly. And, and have them be extensible in a way that you can, you can edit it very easily. It's not just like Paint, Microsoft Paint. Everything is connected and related and it's parametric. And so you can expand that and use it. And I've, I've just found it so helpful in building out diagrams that we then show to the client and have them kind of bless our feature engineering data transformation process. That's so funny you mentioned draw.io. I had never heard of it until literally just last week. So You know, it's the same really? thing, actually. Like, I was looking to make a flowchart, and I did a quick search, and I think that was on the top five that I found. I love it. It's one of my go-to programs. 
In terms of data points and metrics that your team regularly analyzes, are there any, or for high visibility, are there any specific points that you always present to the executives in your company? I know you mentioned that you mostly do the projects for external clients, not internally, but are there some sort of data points you work on that you normally present, let's say, upper management? I think that the main thing that they want to see in, in our performance is that we're staying billable. If it's mostly client-facing, then I guess that would pretty much be your primary focus most of the time. Well, yeah, and so on that on that point, um, with the current project I'm working on, we're building out a platform for the client, right? But we also, this platform is going to be hosted on the CDC systems. We won't necessarily be able to use it internally or for another project if we wanted to, because we don't have access to that code. It's going to be actually on ArcGIS, proprietary platform that we're using. But parallel to that, developing a shiny dashboard. And this is going to be something that we will then show to upper level management and say like, hey, this is kind of a proxy of what we did for them and also have something that we can then use on another project. We're you know, using Shiny and Leaflet to build out a visualization of the geospatial distribution of this chemical. And so we have something in hand to show them like, hey, this is what we did <laughs> instead of just um, pointing them to the CDC system. <laughs> right. That's neat. Be really interesting to know if the partnership actually holds them accountable to certain levels of performance accuracy. If you went back to the client six months later and said, hey, how's that performance tracking now? It would be interesting if that would be taken into consideration when it came to year-end performance reviews for these types of significant data science projects. Yeah, I think that there's certain projects that we've worked on that would have like an ecosystem set up like that where there would be a continuous monitoring of the prediction of the data accuracy such that we would be held accountable for it. Though I can speak for the project that I'm working on now is that we are using data that was from testing completed in the mid-2010s. And we're using it to make a prediction about the distribution of this chemical geospatially now, you know, five years later, you know, five or six years later. And so there's going to be some there's definitely going to be some level of difference in the prediction but we're just going off of what the best data that we have is now though i'm not aware of any projects that we're working on except for maybe the lead project that would have a continuously updated data that we would be able to to see how that performance changes over time it's going to be more along the lines of a one-off analysis not really building systems that pull from live databases or anything like that. I got you. I think that that's a very small amount of the work that we're doing, at least with the CDC. Yeah. You don't touch any GDPR data, do you? I do not. No. No, we have not interfaced with that. That's the new European... Yeah, that's the privacy thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah, California has one now too, which I wouldn't doubt if the rest of the U.S. followed suit. I don't know. Probably. But for mm-hmm. me personally, that bit of privacy is actually impacting us a bit because uh, a bunch of it is about uh, collecting of personal data. So like when we, for example, for uh, when our company connect, uh, collects data, let's say like the ages of the users, we can't always do that now. So we'll have to like, you know, null out most of those data points because of GDP uh, of the California equivalent. I forget the name, actually. What's called, but the California equivalent of the GDPR—that's sort of like how it's affecting 
our company. Yeah, we do. I mean, even though we we aren't really working with the GDPR data privacy issues, we do run into this issue quite often as far as data that has PINI, you know, personal identification information. A lot of data that we are able to touch is tied to specific locations or specific people. And for example, there's uh, there's a publicly available, well, at least a publicly advertised data set called NHANES that is a, a statistically uh, statistically sound and statistically diverse sampling of health health demographics within people in the United States. And we don't necessarily have access to that data right away, even though we work with the CDC. They require that you put forth a proposal for the project that you're working on, that you come to their location and do all of your analyses on site within a certain time frame. And then they basically just have a lot of controls and protections surrounding that data because it's it's very it's very sensitive data and it's got a lot of PINI and it's not enough to, for them to give it to you. For you to scrub it with whatever process that you have and de-identify it, it's not enough from that standpoint where you can just do that. You would have to go and go through their their process and their control to make sure that you're handling the data correctly. See, so that's I just see. one example of the, the data privacy issues that we, we run into. Yeah, that does make perfect sense. Yeah, I, I'm sort of fortunate that the organization I work for, we're all HIPAA certified. So some of these caveats in the California Consumer Privacy Act don't apply to HIPAA compliant organizations, but it is super interesting. And it is, and it makes me it makes me wonder just how much of my own personal data am I giving up simply by using my cell phone, and what are people using it for, and you know how can I be a how can I be a part of making this this world of data interoperability better uh, as a data scientist, and you know honestly, oftentimes I don't think about all of the data that I am giving to companies through my phone or through my browsing history through the cookies that I allow to be downloaded onto my laptop, things like that. I oftentimes remain in ignorance of it, but it's something that people need to think more of, including myself, because you are giving up a lot of data that is, you know, your location, your preferences, who you're with, the pictures that you post online on your social media, things like that. I mean, companies have access to a lot of that. And so I think the GDPR is is good in that it tries to protect people, though I'm not familiar with all of the, the nuances of that legislation. It is good that this discussion is happening because there's just so much data that's being generated. And the pace of change is so much that we're not able to, to really anticipate the consequences of decisions that we're making with that data yet. Like it, it just moves so fast now in my opinion that we just can't really know like what is going to happen by making a decision with this data or making a model that makes a prediction that influences public policy it's very important for data scientists to have a strong grasp of their field to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and to be able to look under the hood of a model that you're working with and think about it from the ethical standpoint because we don't just do this stuff in a vacuum. What we're doing affects people, especially what 
what I feel like I'm working on right now, like as as far as health outcomes and having that ethical question in mind to guide you as you go through it, as you go through the project is so important because people can be affected by what you do, the work that you output, the decisions that are made based on the data and the information that you provide. It's so important to to remember that you can't just be a machine. You actually have to be a human with a conscience as well. Yeah, I if you have a Google account, and I love Google. I mean, I use Google Maps every day. Google search is my preferred search. I have a Gmail account. I love Gmail. Mm-hmm. If you look at your Google account and see all the different categories of data points that they collect on a daily basis, and I forget how to get there right now. I did it last year at some point just to see. I think there's like 60 categories of data points that oh, they wow. are collecting on a regular basis to optimize your experience from an ad perspective. That's just one company. I mean, I was talking to a friend at a <clears throat> at a credit agency and they were saying, yeah, I mean, we're, we're working on an interesting project where let's say you walked into a Kohl's or a Best Buy and you connect to their Wi-Fi. Like technically, we have the ability as soon as you connect within 13 seconds to send them a notification either through their cell phone number or email letting them know whether or not they have been pre-approved for a certain credit card or oh, wow. store card. Like the data is already there, but we don't want to freak people out. A lot of them would get turned off at what an invasion of privacy that might be, but that's already there. That's already happening. So instead, mm-hmm. when a consumer or a customer is trying to get, you know, to apply for a credit card, we're just trying to figure out ways to make that process even faster. So decreasing it from like the 13 seconds to, you know, nine seconds, which which is insane as it is. Because if you remember just like 15 years ago, if you went to an Apple store and you wanted to buy a computer, that, that was still like a several minute process. It still took mm-hmm. a, a few minutes for them to approve you, which <laughs> compared to like 30 years ago, that's a huge improvement. But I don't think the average American or the average like world resident realizes that a lot of these massive companies also make significant revenues on the side from data products. Uber, Uber Media, users who have these apps on in the background, they're selling the movement of that data. It's all encrypted, right? So you don't know who the individual is, but if you have the funds to buy something like that, you can do crazy analytics, crazy predictive stuff, you know, for your business. I struggle with it being awesome and equally scary. <laughs> right. Well, and convenience isn't always like the best thing for us, in my opinion. Like being able to use these apps that help us get from A to B, but what are we giving up in the process? That's a question that we don't necessarily ask ourselves. And we don't maybe have a good picture of what we're allowing companies to do and how we're giving them a window into our lives through this data. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say that they are malicious and intent obviously they're just trying to make money but what they're doing the platforms and the the applications that they're building social media itself facebook instagram twitter you know all of these platforms they're they're changing the way that we interact and they're changing the landscape of our society people don't necessarily think about the consequences of those decisions and i think that we need to have more of a discussion especially around data privacy and maybe we'll have something like GDPR happen in America uh, soon. You know, I mean, it's obviously already affecting us here in America. Like every site that you go to now, it just blows up in your face. Like here, like here's our cookie policy. Here's what we're doing with your data. 
And so that's good. That's a good thing. And it's generating discussion and it's generating change. And that's a discussion that we need to have. Most definitely. Although I do feel that everyone who does come across that side, they just click, well, accept. It just makes <laughs> you look for them. So they go like, okay, here's another thing I got to click accept too. Yeah, it's like, I've got work to do. Please get out of my face. Yeah. <laughs> like this, I don't know if you guys remember this. I barely remember it right now. But that's like the South Park episode years back when they were all just auto-accepting the updates for iTunes. <laughs> oh, wait, was this about Kyle accepting something? I think they auto-accepted the 50-page iTunes agreement or whatever for a simple update. And they didn't realize that there was something in there that said... They became like the human centipedes or something. Like oh the, the, maybe I'm confusing the episodes, but it was it was just all about this. Like it's crazy that any company would think, as a user of a product that we use on a daily basis, will actually read the fifty full pages of something and and then say no. Like no, I've decided not to use Gmail this year. Mm-hmm. But often, no is not a choice. It's either you you say yes and you get to use the platform or you don't want that and you don't get access to it. It's just not a thing, you know? Yeah, so that's, in in California, that was one of the big sticking points that really resounded with me is that at least the ability to have a choice for these companies to not track you. By doing so in California, they cannot simply deny you service, but they can give you a lightweight version of the product that they offer if you accept all the all the terms. So that's that's interesting as well. Like you yeah. can now be a Gmail or Facebook user and I think Facebook has been doing this for a number of years actually across the US, but you can now be a user of these social media services or you know different tech services and not be tracked and protected by California law. They just need to the way that you use those apps might be a lot less advanced. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of for your company, what's in the horizon in terms of data science for visualizations or ML? Are you looking to like AI or something of the sort? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, AI is like a term that just gets thrown around a lot. That is true. We have a lot of definition around it. Um, I think that for people who don't work in data science like we do, that if they hear AI, you know, they immediately perk up and be like, oh my goodness, that's awesome. That's going to be amazing, but it's just so it's so broad. As far as like the next steps that that Guidehouse is taking, I know that there's a lot of work being done in like robotic process automation. That's one of the new fields that we're working in, where a lot of drudge work, Javier, like you were talking about, can can be automated by a bot on your local machine. And it, we're rolling that out for a lot of government agencies, where the paperwork and the processing and all of that is just taken care of by a virtual person on the machine. And it really saves a lot of time. It can cut down on these processes that, that take just so long and are just not interesting to anybody, can get automated out. So that's one of the fields that we're moving into. The reason I mention that, it's not necessarily that that's data science, but it has a lot of overlap with artificial intelligence such that the decisions that need to be made during the whole process that's laid out in the RPA process can be made by algorithms, can be made by artificial intelligence and replace the decisions that are made by humans because it's something that can be put into an algorithm. It can be codified pretty easily. And so there's a lot of overlap between RPA and AI. And it's really interesting. It's just, it's freeing people up to to do more of the work that they want to do. 
We're also moving heavily into utilizing cloud platforms such as Azure, Microsoft Azure, and also Amazon AWS. Our clients are requesting those capabilities much more often. So a lot of people on our team are getting certified in those cloud platforms to be able to facilitate solutions on them for our government clients. So there's a big push towards that. We're also building out a lot of internal training around the use and development of shiny dashboards. And so my background is more in Python, but I've started to move more into R because R's ecosystem is is more geared towards presenting something pretty to people instead of like Python is a is a a multi-purpose language that you know gets extended into the realm of data science and is often used for a lot of you know major platforms like TensorFlow and things like that but it's it wasn't designed originally for data science but the syntax is simple enough that it's easy to to train scientists to use it but it's also it's really just extended into those realms whereas R was built from the beginning to be a statistical language, to be a scientific language. And it also, I, th- I think, has much more capability in the realm of visualization and dashboarding than Python does currently. Even though Python has Dash as a competitor to, to R, internally at Guidehouse, we're really building out our capabilities in the R shiny space and being able to deploy those dashboards on the CDC system is a big push that we're going through now. And so I'm building out this first dashboard for this project I'm working on as a learning exercise. And so I'm really excited about it because, you know, Shiny is awesome. Like I love it so far. It's just so simple to use and so powerful and really looking forward to seeing more work that we're going to do with that. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a huge R Shiny fan, actually. Do you guys have access to our Studio Connect? I think we have, we do have access to that, though I haven't interfaced with it. We do have an instance of that on the CDC system, I think. Yeah. It just makes it so easy to do like literally push button deployment from, you know, if you're using the RStudio IDE from RStudio to RStudio Connect. It's pretty amazing, actually. Carlos, so what education or experiences or skills does your company look for in data science candidates? I mean, are there, is there something specific that they're looking for? Or are they looking for, you know, um, any sort of experience before they hire someone as a data scientist? Or are they willing to, like, train someone up? Mostly, we're looking for people with some sort of technical experience. Like I mentioned, I had a background mostly in engineering and structural engineering. Though I did have a basic command of statistics and I had done programming work before I had taught myself some basic C++ when I was in middle school just because I was interested in that. So I had, I had a bit of a background going into it and I didn't have to get trained by Guidehouse to do the work that I'm doing. So they want to see mainly that you're able to do the work and the way that you can do that is to build out a portfolio of projects that you've done on your own. So you can find a data set that is interesting to you and you can go to it and say like, what can I do with this? What interesting insights can I glean from it? So I would say you need experience, but it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, five years of working for another company doing data science. You need to show that you have technical acumen. You need to show that you have a basic command of statistics and that you know some machine learning modeling and also that you can communicate well. I think that's another uh, 
piece. It's not just uh, knowing the math. It's being able to communicate these insights to people, again, who may not be technical, but that you can kind of distill it down into something that they can understand and, and draw insight from. So you do, yes, you do need to have experience to come work for the data science team, but it's not, it, it's a different paradigm than having like a, a four-year degree. It's, it's more, it's more, you know, efficient in that, can you do the job that we're going to hire you to do? And if so, if you've proven that, then, then you're good to go. It doesn't matter what your background is. Like if you've, if you've built an R-Shiny dashboard or if you have done modeling and your code and your analysis and discussion is all on GitHub for people to see and you have a portfolio and you have some presence in the field, even if it's not with another company, then that's enough. And that's the kind of, those are the kind of people that we're, we're looking for, people with initiative, people who show that they have a passion for the field and aren't just trying to get in because it's the latest hottest thing that it's the sexiest job of the 21st century i guess as the the harvard business review said it, yeah, it, if you don't have a passion for data then you won't you know you won't be a good fit for this job what resources would you recommend to people who are interested in data science let's say for people who want to learn or a resource that they can fall back to if they have questions on what would you recommend yeah the sample space is so huge now because it's just everyone and their mother is trying to get into the field but I would definitely recommend Springboard, which is the platform that I use. They are, they are very good. And the really cool thing about Springboard is that they pair you with a mentor who's an actual data scientist in the field. And they're reviewing all of your work. You have weekly calls with them. So you're going through, through the curriculum on your own time. And then you kind of touch base with them every week. And they will provide you feedback. They'll tell you, like, hey, this is how we do it at our company you should look at this or, you know, tweak your code in some way, or you can discuss, you know, statistical concepts with them. Anything that you're learning, you discuss with them and go through kind of a mentorship process. And it's so valuable. It's so valuable. I mean, just really in any field that you want to learn, you want to get a mentor. And so Springboard does that. And it's, it's just built into the, the ecosystem. So I'd highly recommend that. There's plenty of GitHub portfolios that you could clone onto your machine and start messing around with code if you haven't really had access to the programming side of things. There's a lot that goes into being a good data scientist, and one of those pieces is code. And so you can do so much just by downloading RStudio, you know, downloading Anaconda, and start to build something. You know, find some publicly available data. Preferably something that that hasn't been touched a lot, like you know the iris data set or MT cars, <laughs> and find something new and build something new, and then get some feedback on it. And um, you really learn as you start to do stuff. But I would also say if you don't have a background in math and science, then you need to you need to take some sort of course, maybe on like uh, Udemy or some platform like that where it's like a statistical course or a mathematical course so you can have a foundation because it's not enough just to, you know, to come from a field that, that you didn't take those math and science classes in college and then just start implementing an algorithm and you have no clue what's going on. Like you have no clue why your, you know, your columns, your features should be linearly independent for your linear regression. Like if you can't answer questions like that, then you need to get some background onto what you're doing and, and, and then you'll be ready to, to be a good data scientist. You just really need to, to get to know your data well. Don't skip that part. 
even though it may seem boring and you want to get to the flashy end goal, like the modeling or the dashboarding or the visualization and stuff like that, you need to get into the nitty gritty. If you don't have like a, a scientific backbone, if you don't have a mathematical backbone, like if that doesn't inherently interest you, this field is not for you. I, the only reason I say that is because, I mean, our company is hiring like mad and we're like, we've grown, we've doubled in size over probably the last 18 months. And wow. uh, yeah, we've got, uh, you know, over a hundred people now total on our data analytics team. And if you weren't interested in those kinds of things when you were younger, this probably isn't the field for you. And I say that just to save you time, because this is a, this is a flashy field. Everyone's trying to get into it. And there's a lot of talk and hype around it. And AI is the biggest thing. Like every company is trying to implement that. But, you know, we need to be responsible with the tools that we have. And if you're not interested in learning the ins and outs of it and looking under the hood and really understanding what you're doing and the consequences of it, then uh, this, you know, this may not be the best choice for you to go into. But I would also say, you know, if you were like me, and you were in a field where you you kind of like it, uh, like engineering. Like I, I liked engineering. I you know I was happy there, but you've been interested in data science, and you and there's just something that pulls you towards it. I would say explore that and go down that route and see what you need to do to break into the field. Find people that have done it, and you know reach out to them and be like, what did you do? There's plenty of blog posts on like Medium just all over the internet that, that people will rehash the stories and the steps that they took to break into the field. And so if you look at data science and you're like, man, that looks really interesting. Like that's just is everything that I've really wanted to do. And this was my experience. I looked at it and I realized, man, like just every, almost everything I've been interested in uh, professionally is, is encapsulated in this field. I want to get into it. You know, I, I had to figure out what I needed to do. And, and found Springboard, talked to people who were in the field, interviewed them, and just kind of reconstructed their steps and then took those steps, and now I'm in it. And so it's just very accessible, even though I think that there's a lot of people getting in and we're maybe reaching a critical mass overall. There's still time to get in, and there's still time for you to make that switch, and I would just encourage you because it's just it's so rewarding. Like, I love what I do, and like I was telling Javier, I can't believe that I get paid to do this because... I would already be doing this to some degree on my own without being, without being paid. And in fact, I, I have, but that was just a confirmation that, Hey, like this is a field that I need to be in and I'm glad that I'm in it. Well, that's great. That's how, yeah, that's how, that sounds fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Carlos. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah thank I mean, you guys for having me. Yeah. Your work sounds super interesting. I mean, working with the CDC for all those things that does sound quite amazing. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it.